0: Show you a better way. Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is July the 3rd, 2018. This is episode 2243 of the Survival Podcast. 2243, coming to you on a Tuesday before our nation's birthday. July the 4th, 2018. And actually, our nation's birthday is not July the 4th. It's the day we choose to celebrate it. Who knows what our real birthday is? If you want to, email me. Maybe I'll do something for you if you get it right and you explain why it's our real birthday. I don't know what I will do yet. depends on how many people do it. Anyway, I will be taking tomorrow off. I will be spending most of the day imbibing in adult beverages, hanging out with my family and extended family, and cooking really good food on my grill. And we're going to talk about that today, even though I won't be doing any of this stuff, though I might just so that some of the members of my family have never tried it before. When I go out today uh, and pick some stuff up for tomorrow, I might pick up some snapper or something, do some ceviche that we're going to talk about today, just so... The people who have like, I don't know, it's not cooking, it's not could try it, because I know I can always guilt them into trying things. And whenever I do, they're always like, wow, that's really good. No shit, that's what happens when you actually try new things. What are we going to be talking about cooking today? Seafood and fish. I'm I'm making good on my thread. Last week on Tuesday, I did kind of an after-action review of my trip to Sanibel. And I thought, well, I'll talk to you guys about surf fishing, and I'll throw in some of the stuff we cooked while we were there. And then the show went almost an hour and 45 minutes. And and, other than an aside here and there, I really didn't even get to talk about that at all because it's such an in-depth subject, and I wanted to do a good job for you guys. So today I'm going to talk about cooking, but not just seafood, though we will be using some of the material that we gained while we were out in Florida eating food uh, from the ocean on a daily basis. Uh, right off of our our back porch, so to say. Uh, But most of what I'll tell you today, you could be done with freshwater fish, saltwater fish, bought, caught, doesn't really matter. With the exception of some of the stuff that involves raw food or food cooked with citrus juice, in the case of ceviche, then you really want to use saltwater fish only, I'll tell you why later, and certain things, even from the salt water, do not get used that way. I'll tell you how to make the determination for yourself in just a bit. Well, this is going to be a fun show. It's another one of those ones where I'm like, I'll just talk about cooking fish. I can do that off the top of my head, it won't take any time at all. Here it is. 2 o'clock, uh, two, actually 2.17 p.m. Central Standard Time, and I'm just getting to turn the recorder on because I had so much stuff I wanted to make sure was available to you guys today and resources, recipes, techniques, uh, products, things like that. So it's all in the show notes. When I get to some of the stuff, especially the, uh, the, the new improved Jack Spirico chili uh, recipe, chili and taco seasoning that is now a dry mix instead of a sauce I'm telling you, don't worry about writing it down or anything. I have a little text file linked in the show notes where you can get it exactly, and you're going to want to use this stuff on more than just fish, and you're going to want to use it on more than just tacos. Trust me, it's awesome. We'll get to all of that in just a moment. Before we do, let's go ahead and talk about our two sponsors of the day. Sponsor of the day number one today is Safe Castle Royal, who I often refer to as the original survival podcast sponsor. And how can you be the original? They were the first one. They were so early that they asked to, sp- to sponsor the show. When I was like, uh, "No, I'm not. I'm not taking your money." And they're like, "What? Who else says no to money? I don't hate money. So at certain times, I say no to money. And the time I say to no, no to money is when somebody wants to sponsor something that can't help them yet. You know, I, I don't believe in charity. I believe in value for value exchange. So I had like, you know, 250 people listening to the show, and I'm like, how do I take you know, two hundred to three hundred dollars a month from somebody when I only have two to three hundred people listening to me, and the answer was I can't. So I said, wait, wait until I get us built up. I got us built up to a few thousand. And said, hey, now I'm ready to launch my sponsorship program. You want in? They were still there. Everything for your prep and needs. You'll find it at SafeCastle.com. Loyal sponsor, been with us forever. Give away their discount membership program. Everybody that has that membership that buys it pays twenty nine dollars a year. You get it for free for life. It's the only way you can even get a lifetime membership to SafeCastle is through our MSB. So they're a huge supporter. If you need something for your prepping, they probably got it. Guns to Gardens and everything in between. So check them out today at SafeCastle.com. Next up today, you know fits in perfect with our topic about uh, cooking today? Chef Keith Snow at HarvestEating.com. Big news out of Chef Keith Snow. So he kind of ran low on his spice mixes, seasoning mixes, etc. for quite a long time. And he'd have a little bit of this or a little bit of that, but not everything. And uh, I said, you know, um, Keith, uh, people buy that stuff if they can. But if they can't buy it, they don't buy it. So he's all stocked up now, and he's put together a brand new TSP Seasonings Master Pack. All of my favorite seasonings available in one package. You get it all together. It's the stuff I use every day, like the Carolina Barbecue, the Montana Steak, the Northern Italian Uh, all that great stuff. The grilled chicken, again, it's the stuff I use all the time. I'm big on making up my own seasonings. Man, I'll tell you what, I think my taco seasoning kicks everybody's ass in the world, Uh, but Uh, on some other things, man, being able to just reach up there, grab that Harvest Eating stuff and get using it, it's awesome. Chef Keith also has great instructionals uh, on how to cook, including some classes, great videos, podcast, blog. You can find it all and find everything you start out where, harvesteating.com. Remember, Chef Keith is a member of our uh, expert panel, and uh, you can ask him questions. Uh, I need questions, by the way. This is apart from the... uh, From the sponsorship segment now, I I need questions for Friday. Get them to me today or tomorrow, and maybe I can get some of these pikers on the expert council to get us some answers by Friday. Right now I only have three answers uh, from uh, expert council members for Friday, so I'm going to have to make it a half-jack show if I don't get more stuff into them. Uh, Remember, you can always find all of our expert council members by going to the About link uh, and then uh, checking out uh, all the expert council members and what they can uh, offer you. Lots of great expertise there. Please get your questions in. TSPC expert in the subject line. With that, let's take a look at the year that was the episode. The year being the year 143 A.D. Uh, and we are still in the Roman Empire with the new newest emperor. He's kind of new-ish still. Antonius. We have rights for slaves It's kind of ironic when you think about it. Anyway, uh, the new Roman emperor Antonius was conservative and sought to preserve the status quo. He saw no need to majorly reform the current system, but there were some issues that he thought should be fixed. The first was the issue that some local courts didn't follow accepted standards of the time. With the help of five lawyers, Antonius ordered that Itrerx, a combination of police, officers, and justices of the peace, should treat suspects as shouldn't treat suspects as already guilty, and that records of the cases should be kept to help any appeals to provincial governors. Slaves were also given several legal protections. Slave owners were forbidden from killing their slaves unless a trial had been held, and the local magistrates could order a master to sell a slave if there was consistent abuse. Antonius also put certain limitations on the use of torture to obtain evidence for court. My take by David Verne, who puts these together for us at tspwiki.com. This care about the rights of slaves wasn't motivated by humanitarian reasons. These reforms were necessary for slavery to survive. The empire was completely dependent on slavery, with an estimated one in five people being slaves. The latter days of the Roman Republic had experienced several slave revolts, and the Roman solution to these revolts was giving slaves more rights. But by the time of Antonius, another problem had arisen. Most slaves were war captives, and the lack of recent wars of conquest began to shrink the supply of slaves. This meant that laws forbidding the killing or severe mistreatment of slaves had to be passed in order to ensure that there was a sufficient supply to maintain the institution. There's so much here that applies to the modern day. They didn't really care about the slaves. They gave them more rights to maintain the status quo of having slaves. I'm not even going to comment on that. If you've been listening for any time, your mind is just, you're like, Jack's going to have a jack rat right here in the history Center. Not going to do it. You should be able to take that one for yourself. I do want to talk about a parallel, though, to where, well, slaves were necessary. Slaves were necessary. No, they weren't, but they were. They created a system that caused slaves to be necessary. A Roman citizen was guaranteed... A certain amount of grain every month. They're like an allotment. And this was true throughout much of Rome, not just Rome proper, uh, especially in the cities. So, if your belly will be full every day, whether you work or not, how much incentive do you have to go do the work that, you know, really sucks? So, if they didn't start out with slaves and they had all these things that they wanted done and there was actual need for them, then the market could have provided the solution. This is the same argument that was made by the southern states. Slaves were necessary for the economy of the south. Even though by the time of the Civil War, or war between the states, depending on how you want to look at it, um, slavery had been largely abolished Throughout most of the world, other than in Africa, now there was still a, a, a huge portion of Europe that was under a serf-style system, fuel system, which was very akin to slavery, but wasn't true slavery. But most of the places that, especially the Rome, uh, the the at the time British Empire and the French uh, pseudo empire, I guess by then had extended into outside of their own borders and outside of Europe, had abolished slavery. And somehow, they functioned. It's 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 the reality that when we artificially create sustenance for people who do nothing, we then end up having to rely on either slave labor or slave-like labor. In our world, illegal immigrants would be one example. And when we dumb down the capacity of a citizenry to perform functions. In other words, how, how many... Because think about the most able-bodied... Uh, person in the world as far as physical capability, you can be pissed off if you want to if you're a feminist, I'm sorry, this is the truth, is going to be about an 18 to 30 year old male. When it comes to just pure physical ability, endurance, surviving heat, surviving cold, carrying heavy shit, working through pain, etc., the 18 to 30 year old male is the epitome of that. Okay. How many 18 to 30 year old american born men today, and I don't even care about the race, can frame a house. And you wonder why we rely so much on illegal immigration now that the building boom is back. They can't do it. Now, the thing is, if you took away all this artificial bullshit, all of the huge allotments of money to go to school and learn something that doesn't work, it doesn't actually get you a job, and all of the, the, the programs that feed people for not working. And they had to work. Do you know how long it takes to teach somebody the basics of framing a house? A couple weeks. A couple weeks. As long as you have good quality people there to watch them. So that's a trade that's not that hard to learn. Same with drywall. The reason we have illegal immigrants doing this is a combination of things. It's not just because they work for less. It's because they're willing to do it. And they can do it. We've created a modern slave society, and each slave is slave to something different. The immigrant, the illegal immigrant, is slave to working under the table. The successful American is slave to the credit card, and more and more slave to student debt. And we now have new slavery where all the slaves have to clothe and feed themselves, like we talked about yesterday. The more things change the more they stay the same. And I could do a whole episode on this one segment. I'm not going to, because we got cooking to talk about. Before we do that real quick, just let me remind you, you can help support this show by joining the Member Support Brigade. Just go to the survivalpodcast.com and click on Members to learn more, and I'll make this promise, which has always been there, but I don't say it all the time. Go join the MSB today. Keep it for a month. Use a couple discounts. If you feel that you overpaid, get with me. I'll give you a full refund. That's how confident I am that what I offer is worth what I offer or what I charge for it. So, check it out, the com. Click on members, become a supporting member, support the show at 20 cents an episode. And by the end of today's episode, you're going to be like, man, that's worth 20 cents, and damn it, I'm hungry. So, let's get into it. All right, so let's talk about fish and seafood in general and just a very general concept of getting good quality. Okay? What you want with with any fish product, any seafood product, any shellfish product, I don't care if it's a bivalve like an oyster or a clam or a shellfish like a shrimp or a lobster, um, you want it to be fresh and you want it to smell good. You don't want it to stink like fish. If I walk into a supermarket or a fish market and I get hit with a stinky fish smell, I'm not buying any fish there. I'm not. I'm just not doing it, something's wrong, and it might be only one or two things out of the hole, but I've just determined that this particular fishmonger doesn't know how to take care of fish, and I ain't buying from them. and you shouldn't either. When it comes down to finding the, the, the different, the three different main things that you can find, there is some canned stuff and all. There's some cool stuff you can do with it, but we're not going to talk about that today. Maybe I'll, I'll do a, fit, a fish from preps type show someday. That might be fun. We'll talk to you about using things like canned shrimp and canned fish and canned crab meat and stuff. But other than that, there's really three ways you can get fish. You either grow it or catch it, right? So I'll call that one. So you self-provide. The next way is you, you get freshly caught, never frozen. And for some things, this is really necessary. I'm not buying frozen clams or frozen mussels. Those things should be alive when I get my hands on them, okay? But, you know, if you live close to the shore you might be able to go down to the fishmonger, and they might go to the fish market, buy the fish, and bring it. It's never been frozen. It's sitting on ice, and it it came out of the ocean yesterday. And I would prefer that to frozen. However, if you live in a place the fish gets flown in once a week and it's never been frozen, you're probably better off with a flash-frozen variety of fish for most but not all things. And it really comes down to where do you live. If you live in Lincoln, Nebraska, how close is the is the closest fresh mackerel or fresh bluefish or fresh trout or fresh snapper? You, you see what I'm saying. If you live in Houston or you live in New York City or you live in Jacksonville, Florida, there's probably locally sourced fish that's incredibly fresh, and it's a good idea to get in touch with whoever you buy your fish from and find out. What is that and when is is it most available? And rely on it then. Otherwise, frozen fish is kind of the best way to go there. So just kind of put that in your, your mind as we go through these different ways to prepare fish. And as I get to the end of these different individual things, I'm going to talk about some best practices you can use at home. I want to start out with ceviche. And the reason I want to start out with ceviche is it is the best thing most people never make. Even people willing to eat it are often afraid to make it, and it's just silly. And the reason it's silly is because it tastes so damn good, it costs so stupid much to buy, and it's so damn easy to do. And so many people, I think, are afraid to make ceviche at home. They think there's some kind of magic hocus-pocus that keeps you from dying or something like that. And there is some things that you do want to follow as a rule when you make ceviche. Number one is salt water only. There are some parasites that freshwater fish can carry. And there's actually some things that can be done to kill them without cooking the fish. And some very sophisticated Japanese chefs that include include stuff that you wouldn't normally think of as in sushi and sashimi do that with not only fish products but also other meat products. I'm not going to get into that because I'm not going to take a liability. Okay, and it's not something I'm going to do. So I'm only going to tell you to do what I do. If you stick to saltwater fish, when it comes to eating any kind of raw or cooked without heat, which is what ceviche is. Ceviche is not raw; it's cooked without heat. It is absolutely cooked. You, if I put two pieces of cooked fish, one cooked with heat, let's say poached really delicately, and then drizzled with a little lime juice, and one cooked with just straight lime juice in front of you, and they're both chilled it would be almost impossible for you to tell me which one's which, unless you really knew what to taste for, but in appearance and texture, you would never tell me the difference. It is cooked, but it doesn't get the benefit of the heat, which would kill any sort of a parasite. Saltwater fish in that highly saline environment are not able to carry these particular parasites. It doesn't mean saltwater fish can't carry parasites. I've caught saltwater fish where you open them up and there's these big worms in them, okay? They're not dangerous to you, just don't eat the worms. Okay, But there are some very dangerous parasites that can inhabit freshwater fish. This is why I'm very careful, and It's really not something we're talking about today, but I'm very careful when it comes to doing something like your own sashimi and salmon. Farmed salmon is not always farmed in a saltwater environment. So if you're going to use farmed salmon and use it raw, you want to be sure of your source. With ceviche, you want to make sure it's super fresh and that all the ingredients that you use, not just the fish, are super fresh. Another thing that you want to do, I'm going to talk about some of the other ingredients like cilantro, peppers, etc. Even though it's all going in the same place, it's really the best idea to cure the fish with the citrus and then add the fresh ingredients and let's not contaminate the peppers and cilantro with fish juice. Let's get them into and and, and kind of cured is the way to look at it with the lime juice before we add the fresh ingredients. And when we do that, let's clean off the cutting board and cutting implement before we go and, and add our peppers and cilantro and avocado and other things like that. So let's talk about some fantastic fish for this. Again, we're in the saltwater world. Snapper, lane snapper, pink snapper, red snapper, mangrove snapper, I don't care snapper uh whiting i talked about that in my surf fishing episode recently whiting also known as gulf kingfish which sounds a lot more cool it's the proper name but as soon as you say kingfish everybody's thinking they're a great big king mackerel or nothing like that a big whiting is a pound and a half two pounds most of them are about that are eating size about three quarters of a pound they are a member of the drum family which also uh, saltwater trout are and all of these fish are easily overcooked. Redfish that people adore, easy to overcook. Not as easy as whiting, not as easy as sand trout, but it's easy to overcook redfish. you got to be careful with it. And, and one of the reasons redfish does so well is because they get so big, you get thicker pieces and they're less susceptible to, you know, just hitting that point where they overcook too fast. Black drum, uh, saltwater black drum, are actually Every bit as good as redfish. Even those people call them a trash fish. They would make a good ceviche as well. The reason whiting are good is because they're small. They are a little finicky with being easily overcooked, and you will not overcook them in ceviche. Trout. I just mentioned whiting are in that drum family. Trout. Sea trout. Not your you know your rainbows and brownies and stuff like that. But sea trout are actually in the same family as the, all the other drums, the redfish and the whiting and what have you, even though they have a very different mouth. And one thing they do share in common is, is as good as they are. They're also easy to overcook. They're also easy to mishandle. Get them too saturated with water. Be unable to get them dried out. And even when you cook them right, they still get mushy. Sea trout, speck, and uh, just what we call a sand trout, which is kind of a looks like a kind of a cross between like a drum and a, a speckled trout, and it's got teeth. Uh, and they run really heavy in uh, in Texas in November uh, down in the Corpus Christi area, or you could fill up a hundred gallon freaking igloo uh, cooler with them uh, on some nights, really easy in just a couple hours. They make a fantastic, fantastic ceviche. Uh, Next, kind of moving out of the world of finfish, the one uh, bivalve shellfish that works really, really great with them is scallops. And scallop is something that I would, if it's properly handled and cared for, and most flash-free certainly is, I would eat it raw. I would eat it as a ceviche, or I'm sorry, I would eat it as a sashimi or in some sort of a sushi preparation. And my rule for ceviche is even though it's cured cooked with the lime juice and it has the texture of cooked fish, if I would not eat it raw, I will not make ceviche with it without doing something else to it with heat first. Okay, um, But anything saltwater that's light and delicate, uh, pompano and permit actually make really good ceviche. When you move into things like mackerel, mackerel can have a bit of an oily fish taste to it. The mackerel I tried doing it with was freaking outstanding. But as you move into beefier, meatier fish, uh, cobia, uh, mahi, swordfish, things like that, they actually make a decent ceviche, but they're so outstanding to cook with, I kind of put them in like, it's better to cook those because they cook well. So when we talk about fish tacos, I'm going to really push you toward swordfish or mahi, for instance. Cobia would be fantastic. I can never get it here. Um, But those fish that are more steak-like and and heavier generally can handle cooking so they're better suited to it. But they will generally make a good ceviche as well. Again, you want super fresh ingredients. And the one thing that I do like to use in ceviche that I will not use raw and not rely on the lime juice to cook is shrimp. Small shrimp especially, like they call them cocktail shrimp or small size, or sometimes they call them uh, tiny, but tiny is relative to the, the, the seller, what that really means. There's no standardization in that world. But something about the size that would easily fit on a teaspoon whole with a couple of the little things is generally a great size. My simple solution to that is those things are always available pre-cooked. So in general, I just buy them pre-cooked. I'll buy like a pound at a time, and I might use a quarter pound in a batch of cerviche. So then I'll just break it into quarter pound increments and freeze it, and then I can just pull out a little Ziploc bag full of a quarter pound of shrimp, let it, let it uh, defrost, and add it to my ceviche. Uh, the way you make it, and I'm going to leave out the extra stuff for just the basics because of how easy this is. Dice up whatever you're going to cook with the lime juice, which is what we're going to do. All we're going to do is take the fish, put lime juice on it, and mix it up. Add a little salt and pepper, and we're done. That's it. You've made ceviche. Now it's a pretty boring ceviche. There's nothing that really enhances the flavors yet, but that's what we're going to do first. Big thing, and this is going to be true when you cook with fish over and over and over again. Get the water out of the fish. Specifically, in most instances, what you're going to be doing with ceviche is you're going to be buying a frozen fish product. Most of you do not live where you're going to get a super fresh piece of snapper that's never been frozen. In fact, most of the time, this is something to to realize that you're being misled about. When you go into a supermarket and they have those non-frozen fillets of snapper sitting there, usually if you look, because they have to disclose this, you'll see a little sign somewhere that says, previously frozen. So you would be better suited going to the freezer section and getting the same... That's all they've done. They've taken that frozen those frozen portions and they've put them out there because I know people want to buy them that way. <coughs> so go ahead and buy it frozen. When they freeze fish like this, what they usually do is they process it a lot of times right on the boat and it goes into an immediate flash freeze. It holds a lot of water when it does that. You'll find especially your mahis and, and things like that really hold a lot of water. When you get them defrosted, Take a paper towel, wrap them with it, and gently press down, and you'll be surprised at how much water comes out. And then if there's skin, take the skin off. You do that with a fillet knife or any really good sharp knife will do that. I can't really explain that on the air. And dice it into dices. Then put it back in a paper towel and give it another kind of gentle wringing out with a paper towel. Take the moisture out of it. Put it into a bowl. How much lime juice? How much fish do you have? Enough that you can coat the fish really well. You'll see it turn color and change and, and cook, and it is cooking in the citrus acid. And you should have some reservoir of brine left in there. In general, you know, a small amount. I use about two limes. Okay. Um, what the most basic form of ceviche is that, that I really like? Your fish of choice, diced up into bite-sized pieces. Couple of limes for the juice. If you use a lot, use more limes until it, just look at it. You'll know. A little salt and pepper, chopped cilantro, and a chopped chili pepper. Jalapenos are awesome. I had never used poblano's before. I think poblano's might be my new flavor f- favorite for ceviche. They actually, even though they are technically a milder pepper, they seem to have a little more bite in ceviche. Jalapenos, when they hit lime juice, it really kills the capsaicin in them. So I take a, a, an, a not an, an I'm sorry, a, a poblano pepper. And slice it into, you know, pieces, and then slice it into strips, and then slice it into fine dices. How much? How much do you want? I mean, again, you can't get, this is, cerviche was just a a fisherman's dish, a fresh beach dish. You know, a housewife of a fisherman, when he'd come home, would just make some of that up. It was, it's great for eating in the summer when it's hot, because you want it chilled, okay? And I'll talk about chilling fish later, but you want your fish well chilled when you make this. Not after, after is fine, but you want it when you make it, you want that fish good and cold. Um, And then get creative. Here's some other things that you can add. Diced tomatoes are fantastic in a ceviche. Uh, Avocado. Usually, if it's a a big batch of ceviche, one avocado cubed. And and the way I do that, I split the avocado. Don't cut your hand, don't get avocado hand. Freaking idiots. Um, And then I just take a knife and make a series of lines through the avocado. And then I go the other way and make basically a, you know, a tic-tac-toe pattern about the size of the dices I want. And then I take the knife and I go in and about half the, the, the thickness of the avocado, I kind of cut all the way around, rotate it around, and then take a spoon and spoon it out, you got perfect dices. Really simply, you don't need a special freaking tool to do this. Uh, and it's much easier than sitting there trying to like peel it whole and then dice it and it's slimy and it gets all away from you. Drop those in. If you add avocado to your ceviche, it's going to turn the brine kind of a light colored green. And it's really better for smaller batches that you're not going to be keeping for multiple days. You can keep it for multiple days. It doesn't go bad. It stays great in the refrigerator, especially if you've used the ice chicken I'll, I'll tell you about in a bit. But that that is a fantastic addition. Is either tomatoes or avocados. Cucumber's actually amazing in ceviche. Really thinly sliced cucumber is, is another fantastic thing. Probably my favorite ceviche would be to do this. About... Uh, a half a pound of a fish, about a half a pound of scallops, and you can either buy big ones and dice them up, or they cost a lot less if they're small. So buy the smaller, like they call them bay scallops, and a lot of times those are actually pretty thick, and it's kind of a pain in the butt, but it's probably worth it to go through and cut them in half um, cylindrically. So lay them on their side because they're, they're, you know, they're not very big around, but they're kind of long, and cut them in half that way. Those things are going to be full of moisture. Why? How they process them, and it behooves them. They sell it by weight. If you're selling water for the price of scallops, you're doing pretty good. And it does help them preserve well in in their their packaging. So defrost them in the refrigerator. Keep them cold. Get them on a paper towel. Wring them out until you get... You're not going to get all the moisture out of them. They'll be dehydrated. But get all that excess moisture out of them. And then give them a chop in half, if they're the little ones. If they're big ones, cut them into the size you want. So a half pound of scallops, half pound of fish, quarter pound of tiny shrimps. And the shrimp's pre-cooked. Diced poblano or jalapeno or serrano pepper, diced cilantro, and cubed avocado. That is so off the hook. If you want to do tomato, cucumber, take something away. Take the avocado away and do either tomato or cucumber, or you end up with basically salsa with fish in it. Here's the wonderful thing about this stuff. When you make like guacamole, or, no matter how hard you try, you usually end up with it browning. You can do some things to slow it down. We won't get into today, but in the end, it browns. You put avocado cubes in ceviche, and you've got that nice brine of, of uh, lime juice there, It'll stay two, three days in the refrigerator if you keep it nice and cold. Try making your own ceviche. What I just described, it costs you about 15 bucks to make, less if you provide your own fish. You're going to make a bowl of ceviche for 15 bucks. You go to a restaurant, and they will bring you a little freaking Ramkin of a couple ounces of that shit for 12 to 15 dollars. What I said in my write-up today, part of why we're doing this show is, yeah, fish is something we can go out and race for ourselves, catch for ourselves. It's good to know how to cook with it. But the other thing we're being on in, in, in our modern survival lifestyle is money management. When you go out to a good restaurant, and I don't believe in going to shitty ones because I'm going to pay too much for food that sucks. right? I'd rather pay more for food that's great. You go to a good restaurant, you're paying about 25% for food and 75% for service. That's what you're. When you look at what they made, if you made it yourself, you can make it yourself with the best ingredients you can get, the best techniques you can get for 25% of the total. And that's what they aim for. That's what they're trying to do. And they're actually aiming for more like 90-10, but they can buy the food for less in quantity than you can. And they can stretch things in some creative ways, too, to, uh, to make more money per plate. And they make a hell of a lot of money on the alcohol, right? So. You think about that, that I can make what a restaurant would sell for probably about 60 to $80 in ceviche for 15 bucks, And I don't have to make that much. You can scale it up or down to meet your needs. It does keep good. It does keep good. I'll talk about how to keep fish in the refrigerator toward the end of today's show. But don't be afraid to make more than you can eat in a setting. You make some for lunch or dinner. Do that on a Friday or Saturday. Get up on a weekend morning. Make yourself a big-ass Bloody Mary. Take some chilled leftover ceviche. Go sit on your porch and eat it while the sun comes up. And you will realize you could eat that for breakfast every day of your life. It's that good. Don't be afraid of it. Let's talk about the holy grail of fish. Fried fish. I've eaten two kinds of fried fish. Really freaking good. Really freaking shitty. There, there's almost never a point where I'm like, this, this is okay for fried fish. You know, it could be better, but it's okay. You're, you're like, well, maybe it could be better, but it's, it's kick ass. Or it's mushy, it's overcooked, the breading's falling off, the breading's greasy, the fish is greasy. You know what I mean. I've actually only ever had fried fish one time that was dry. And it's a catfish place up in Hazel. I can't remember the name of the place, but some folks told me about it when we moved here. I was pretty excited about it. And they were like these little thin strips of catfish, and it was awful. My wife and I were like, we'll never come here again. It was that bad. You really got to cook it a long time to dry out fish in boiling oil, but it can be done. Here's your keys to fried fish. Number one, the right temperature for your oil is 325 to 350 degrees, depending on the fish. And you need to check that with a thermometer. Um, I can cook fish in oil without a thermometer. I've been doing it a long time. I'll make a little tiny piece. I'll cut a little piece off. I'll bread it. And uh, when I think it's there, I'll throw it in and I'll look at it. And if it ain't where I want it, I'll watch it. And eventually it'll do what I want it to do. A certain way that it bubbles and all. And I'll go, okay, we're there. And I'll drop my heat down to maintain it. I'll start putting my fish in. I watch it and I can do it. And I'm within 10 degrees. Um, If that's not you get a thermometer, bring your oil to a temperature about 10 degrees above where you want it, drop your heat down, add your fish, check your temperature, and adjust your heat accordingly. Try to Don't don't chase a ghost, but if you're trying for 350, try to stay in a 340 to 360 degree range. Do not put the damn fish in the oil until the oil is freaking hot. Test piece is sure. What happens is if you put that fish in that oil before that oil is hot... You drop that breaded fish in there, the oil soaks into the breading, and then it, the oil uh, that's in the breading then soaks into the fish, and then it finally fries, and it looks good on the outside, and it's just greasy. That's, that's one of the ways that that happens. As far as coating, you cannot go wrong, in my opinion, with Louisiana fish fry. I know it's just cornmeal, corn flour, some preservatives, and paprika, and garlic powder. I know that's what's in it. I've tried to make my own version of it. I've done pretty good. It's too much hassle and too much trouble. Fried fish is not something you're going to eat all the time anyway because in the end, nutritionally, it's not the best thing for you. It's a treat. I ain't worried about you know the little few things in there that I wouldn't put in myself. I love Louisiana fish fry. I have a link in today's show notes. It always comes out great. If I'm making a bunch of fried fish for friends and family and I want to do as little work as possible... I get a big thing of Louisiana fish fry, and I know no one's going to bitch. If I want to make some spicy, I'll, I'll break it into batches. I'll add some cayenne pepper and some old bay to one half, and then I got spicy and mild. Um, put your own salt and pepper on it when it hits the plate. All I do, well, let's first of all, yes, of course, you can make your own breading. And yes, I can make low carb fried fish. How about per large fillet, one carb? You want to know how to do it? Really easy. And it, it tastes as good or better than Louisiana fish fry, um, though it, it is different. But it's 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 a little bit of extra time. So what you do, you're going to mix these things in equal amounts, say a half cup a piece to make up a batch of this pork rinds, and you're going to crush them into fine grindedness. That's going to give a lot of crispiness. So you got maybe a half quarter cup, depending on how much you want to make of that. You're going to get a low-carb bread. Since low-carb is a thing, you can find low-carb bread. You're going to toast a piece or two, however much you need to make it, and you're going to toast it till it's well dried out, or you can just let it go stale, but toasting it speeds that up for you. Let it sit on the counter after you toast it and completely dry out overnight, and you get a better breadcrumb if you do that. So lightly toast it and let it sit out to go stale. Or let it go stale and then put it in the toaster just till it turns a little bit golden brown. Take a cheese grater and a fine grade side and you run it across the cheese grater. Do this in a bowl because it's not going to come out the other side of the cheese grater. It's going to come out on the side you're grating it on. It's going to crumble. Some of the crust isn't going to work. Throw it away. Give it to the chickens. Make your own low carb breadcrumbs. So we got quarter cup, half cup, whatever, of our pork rinds. We got the same amount of breadcrumbs. Get almond meal and use an equal amount now of almond meal. And then it's going to sound crazy. Hard, good quality Parmesan cheese. Not the little crumbly stuff, the little tiny finely grated hard cheese. Mix all that together and use that as your as your breading. How I bread my fish. Every guy I watch on TV makes this dredging station set up. And they usually use panko breadcrumbs and crap like that. They get egg and this and then they dip it in there and they dip it in flour and they go back to the egg and then they go to the breadcrumbs. Bullshit. It's... It, it, you end up with almost no flour left by the time you do that. It all comes off. I've done it. I've seen it. It's not. It's not necessary. What I do, I take some eggs and some cream, or just milk if that's what I have. But I like to use cream or half and half. How much? I don't know. Uh, you know, I probably, if I'm making a lot, might use three to four eggs scrambled, and I add enough cream that it looks right. So it's kind of it thins it out a little bit, but it's still sticky. Uh, so probably I don't know a couple ounces. when I was in Florida and we made some fried fish in the in the hotel room, I didn't want to buy cream or milk uh, in any significant quantity while we're sitting in a hotel room. so I used coffee creamers and to two eggs I used uh, four of the little like you know little uh, the little actual half and halves that you open up they put in your room I used four of those per two eggs. so that gives you kind of a ratio. Scramble it up real good. I usually do some salt and pepper and paprika in the egg mix because it gives them extra seasoning. And if I have it, I'll throw some old bay in there. Love old bay, link in the show notes. And I'll I just drench the fish in that. I put my breading in a Ziploc bag. And I bring the fish up and I use my fingers and I don't have I take a little bit of that excess off, drop them in the bag. I use four to six pieces depending on their size at a time in the bag, and I kinda roll them around in the bag. I'll open the bag up, and you won't have a perfect coating when you do that. People say, just shake it up and dump it out. No, it doesn't work. Go ahead and move it around with your hands in there. You'll get a lot less of those monkey fingers where you got all that clumped up on your hands. So roll it around, add some, you know, make sure it's all coated well, set it on a plate, repeat. In between, get a rag and a sink, wash your hands off so you don't build up major clumpage. You'll be a lot happier in the end. One layer on a plate, I use paper plates. When that layer is done, I put a paper plate right on top of it, do another layer, depending on how much I'm doing, like a big sandwich. When I'm done with that, I take all of it and I put it in the refrigerator. I will not put that shit in the oil and fry it for at least an hour, and my preference would be to bread it this evening after dinner to cook it for tomorrow's dinner. Let it sit in the refrigerator. When you do that, that breading adheres and it cooks beautifully. Notice I did not say go freeze it. I have never frozen fish like this. Take it out tried try it. It might work. I doubt it will be as good. I doubt you'll get that wonderful crispiness. Then fry it in your oil, and when it starts to float, kind of check it, get it out, don't overcook it. Um, One of my favorite things to make is jalapeno tartar sauce, which is basically just I take some mayonnaise, I take some sweet pickle relish, I take some diced jalapeno, and maybe a little bit of diced green onion, and I mix that together, and a good pinch of dill in there is nice, too. Maybe a little squirt of lime or lemon juice onto it. That is fantastic. Um, When you use the pickle relish, make sure you strain it out really well so you don't make the, the tartar sauce too thin. And if you use lime juice or lemon juice, just a little bit to add some of that tang, you don't want to water it down. That's absolutely fantastic. Here's my big secret to fried fish. People always ask me, how come it's always crispy? How come it's not greasy? I tried and did everything you said. Well, what would you do? Well, I took my fillets and I cooked them. And you say, well, what kind of... I used catfish. Like, so you used whole catfish fillets? Yeah, wrong answer. Wrong answer. Yes, it's faster. It is. I mean, because you you know, if you have four fillets, you bread four fillets, you fry four fillets, you're done. But if you think about the fillet of that fish, the tail side is really thin, and the the, the front side is really thick. So what I'm going to do, I'm going to lay that fillet down. I'm going to cut the thin part of the tail off. That's going to be a piece. Then there's going to be a line down the center that separates the bottom from the top of the fillet. I'm going to take my knife right in that line. I'm going to cut that piece in half. Then, depending on how big it is, I may turn it sideways and cut it into another two pieces. Each of those two pieces now are four. Okay, so we had, we had, here's what we've got with the fish. We've got the tail piece, that's one. Then we had that front piece, we cut it in half, we made two. Then we cut each of those pieces in half, we now have five pieces from that fish. Now it's probably pretty thick, especially the back. I'm gonna turn it upright, take a good sharp knife, I'm gonna cut it, and I'm gonna cut it right down the center so that it thins out to half of its thickness. I'm going to butterfly it. And I might do out the lower piece, and I might not, depending on how thick it is. Now I have, uh, if I do just the top, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven pieces per filet. They're all about the same size and about the same thickness. They're all going to cook in about the same period of time. They're not going to have to be in there a real long time to cook because they're not thick. Since they're not thick and they don't have to be in there a real long time, I'm not going to over-darken my breading. You got it? It's real simple. The surface ratio is better. We all know when we eat fried food, the fried part's the good part. Come on. So there's more breading to a fish-flesh ratio. That means less fish feeds more people and makes them feel full. Now, I'm not big on the carbs and stuff, but you can do the low-carb thing if you want to. Right? Again, I fix, since it, this is something I do about once every two months. This is like, instead of a donut, I have fried catfish, just so you can understand where I'm coming from with it. Um it will, you know, about the grease, smaller pieces retain less grease. They, the, the whole coating crisps up quicker so it takes less grease in, cooks faster, they all finish at the same time. That's my secret. And I've had a lot of people ask me my secret. The thing about my secret is not a secret. I've never hidden that. I've always told people that, and people never believe it until they freaking try it. Cut your big pieces of fish into small, reasonable-sized pieces of fish. Again, my average catfish fillet ends up into about seven pieces And in the end, you end up with a much more satisfying fried fish. I've done that with uh, cereal mackerel. I did the same type of thing. We did some fried mackerel while we were in Florida. Man, that was good. That was one of the best pieces of fried fish I ever ate in my life. And I didn't think fried mackerel would be that good, but I figured we'd try it. Because when we cooked it other ways, I was like, that's less fishy tasting. Most mackerel, like, fish isn't supposed to be fishy, but mackerel kind of has a fishy thing. Man, that was fantastic. Grilling fish. I'm going to be quick on this one so the show doesn't go too long because grilling is actually really easy. One thing we need to remember with fish is they don't really need a lot to to be good. But your main methods for cooking fish on the grill are going to be your foil pouch method, cooking on wood planks, which I won't say much about because I've not done it, though I've eaten fish done that way, and it is pretty good. Uh, direct grilling skinless, and what I consider direct grilling on the half shell. And additionally, direct grilling whole fish head and skin on, which I'll talk a little bit later about. I like the foil pouch method because the fish doesn't fall apart into the, the grill. So your more delicate fish that falls apart quickly, I really like to do that way. My issue with it is you're going to not really grill, you're going to more steam and poach. And that's okay, but you're not going to get any grill marks, you're not going to get any crunch or anything like that, under the fish. But again, it's better with delicate fish. The other issue you got to be careful with when you're doing a full pouch is not to overcook. Once you have that grill good and hot, you need about 10 minutes per inch That means if you're putting fish on a good hot grill, and it should be good and hot before it goes on there, and it's a half-inch thick fillet in five minutes, two and a half inches each side is done. And if you're worried about it, get the pouch off, let it sit there. That pouch is going to stay hot inside. Now, if the grill's not hot enough, that number may change. So you have to learn your own grill and what works for you. But always remember, if you undercook a fish, you open the foil pouch, don't tear it, unwrap it. And if you look at it or you take it with a fork and it doesn't flake right and it ain't done, you can always roll it up and stick it back on and learn from that experience and change your cooking time for the next piece or the next cookout. If you overcook it into mush, there's no rewind button. So error to the side of safety there. Um, As far as skinless grilling, this works really good if you have a couple things going on. Number one, you take good care of your grill. It's nice and clean and well-seasoned. Don't try it with a new grill. Use your grill a while. Get it really seasoned. get it where When you cook a hamburger, it never sticks. Now you're ready for fish. If your grill is cooking, uh, sticking when you make hamburgers, you're either using really shitty meat, or you're not taking good care of your grill, or it's not fully seasoned yet. When you get to where you can do that, though, with a burger, and your burgers never stick, now you're ready for fish. And fish like mahi, swordfish, corvina, cobia, Tuna, uh, fresh, beautiful tuna. Though I think if you make tuna and you're gonna cook it, because I just think it's perfect, like it's poke or uh, as a, as a, a sashimi or sushi, just raw. I don't care. I'll just sit down with tuna, wasabi, and ginger, and, and soy sauce and a knife. I don't even have to pre pre slice it. I'll sit there and just slice a piece and eat it and slice it just happy, right? But I'll admit that seared tuna is good. But you want it really, really rare. So seared tuna on the grill. Uh, make up a good rub that will help create a crust because it's the only reason you're doing this in the first place. And uh, get that girl screaming hot. Get that tuna totally dry. Your fish needs to be dry. A little bit of oil on it. Put that good coating on it, like a good blackening coating. or like the, the, Actually, I think tuna with the taco season I'm going to give you in a minute, w- grilled like this would be amazing. Or like crusted with sesame seed, a little wasabi ginger thing going on. Sear it, get it off. So that's where you got like an inch and a half piece of tuna, and it's on the grill for maybe a minute each side, screaming hot. If it doesn't sear in that time, your grill's not hot enough for tuna, and you don't deserve a piece of tuna. I'm sorry. Um, But mahi and swordfish do really well. In the freshwater world, catfish, especially bigger pieces of catfish or hold catfish, do really good direct on the grill. And catfish have grease in them. And uh, it's kind of, when it cooks out, it cooks out like a white foaming grease. And you might think this would be a bad thing. This is a good thing. Because what will happen is it will fall down into the flames. And it's not like chicken where it catches on fire. It's little flare-ups, little pshh, psh psh, psh psh, And that will actually get you a nice kind of crisp, brown, maybe a little blackened in a few spots, catfish. And it's it's got enough body that it stays together. Saltwater catfish that I talked about in my surf uh, fishing episode uh, the people put down, they do really well on the grill. They hold together. Mackerel holds together really well on the grill, especially like Spanish mackerel. Shark holds together really well on the grill. All of these can be cooked with a little bit of oil, a little bit of seasoning. Throw them on the grill, cook them till they're done, get them off. It's that simple. Um, when it comes to what I call cooking on the half shell, there are fish that don't cook real well on the grill um, directly. Like if you take a fillet and throw it on there, it's too delicate, it comes apart. One of the classic fish we catch like that here in the North Texas area are sand bass, a.k.a. white bass. And these fish will be a pound and a half fish, you get a couple fillets off of each one. We usually fillet them, skin the fillets, and fry them, that's how they're the best. Uh, But grilled, what you do is you just fillet them and leave the scales, the skin, everything on. You hit them with a little butter, salt, pepper, paprika, and a little bay if you want to. And you put them on the grill skin side down. And when they start to kind of curl a little bit, they're done. When you can stick down there and put a fork in them and just pull and it flakes, they're done. Get them off. Eat them right out. And they'll come right out of the skin. Throw the skin in the compost pile. The chickens will eat it. Uh, or throw it away. Either either way. Or give it to the dog. Dogs usually eat them uh, pretty happily. Because they'll crisp up nice. Now, if you take the time to fillet those... I'm sorry, to, uh, to scale a fish like that and do the same thing with it, the skin will keep it from sticking, and then the skin crisp needs skin. I personally think skinning white bass is a pain in the ass. Maybe that's white bass ass. That's why they rhyme. Uh, I don't think it's generally worth it for their skin, but I might do one or two a year because it is pretty good. If you're going to scale them, Don't think, well, I'll just fillet them, take them home, and I'll scale. No, scaling a fillet is almost impossible. Skinning a fillet easy, scaling one, uh, scale them while they're whole. Um, Bluegills scale easily. Uh, Any fish that scales easily, you can do that with. And then there are some fish that have really little scales that you can cook this way. You just eat scales, skin and all, like trout, like true trout, rainbow trout, and what have you. Uh, Skin fish, like catfish, no, don't cook them with skin on them with one exception. If you get a really big catfish, especially like a blue or a channel that's over about six to eight pounds, they're not really worth filleting in my opinion because they're so easy to stake. And all I do is cut the head off of them and gut them. And I get them really cold. I'll even take and put them on a, uh, like a cookie tray, throw them in the freezer till they're almost frozen because they'll cut, they'll, you know, not totally frozen, but almost. Might put them in there for 10, 15 minutes, go in there, flip it over for another 10, 15 minutes. Bring it out, put it on the cutting board. Cut about one and a quarter inch thick steaks, just like a salmon steak, straight across. You know, so you're go, you're cutting. You got the fish laying horizontally. You're cutting vertically through the fish. Leave the skin on. Them. It ain't worth taking off. It's only on the outside. Season that up. Throw it on the grill. The grease will come out. Fantastic. You get down to the last piece of the tail on a big cat like that, where you're going to get it, like an average size fillet. Good fillet of that off. Like kind of below the butthole where it gets thin down, fillet that off, skin it, and use it for your fried catfish. But everything above there, just stake it, and you can stake way down the tail if you want to. Just you'll get to a point where it's not big enough around to really be worth doing anymore. And man, that is one of the best ways in the world to do catfish. You can get big catfish. Uh, so that's kind of my my soliloquy on uh, grilling with uh, a, a couple more things. Number one, consider dill or sumac for any fish. Uh, sumac as a seasoning. You can also use wild sumac here. I have to say the poison sumac thing because I'll get a million emails from people freaking out. People are going at Sumac. Okay, poison sumac is white, and the berries hang down, but it's white. Uh, staghorn and smooth sumac, which are the edible sumacs that are not poisonous to anybody. I don't know, you might have an allergic reaction to azorbic acid or something, because mostly what they are is vitamin C. The berries grow up like a flower. They kind of sort of remind you of the crepe myrtle, and they're deep dark burgundy red. There is no such thing as poison sumac with red berries. You take those berries, and you can use them on fish, either dried or fresh, and they're fantastic. Or you can buy European slash uh, Middle Eastern sumac uh, from the store, from Amazon, and both of those are fantastic as is dill on fish. I mentioned whole fish head on. Basically, you scale them. If they're a fish that you'd want to scale, you gut them, you leave them whole, and you throw them on the grill and cook them. You can take some aromatics like dill or uh, sumac or like um, ginger and put them inside the cavity when you cook them, and they're great. That way you can even shove them in their mouth and whatever. And it kind of perfumes the whole fish. My favorite thing to do, and I do this a lot with our tilapia from our, our aquaponics system. Filetting them to me, you waste a lot of meat on a tilapia when you fillet it. People say tilapia don't have any flavor. Well, you don't know how to cook. Try this and tell me tilapia don't have flavor. Take your tilapia, put them under, hit them in the head, freeze them, whatever you're going to do to put them out. Gut them. So cut them from the butt up to the gills. and Pull all of the guts out. And that's it. Just pull the guts out and and scale them. Scale them before you, you gut them. It's just easier. And tilapia scale really easily. Really, really easily. Um, so I scale them right over my compost bin in my chicken aviary. And uh, I, I throw the guts into my bullhead tank, and the bullheads eat the guts. So that's how I do those. Unless I'm doing a bunch at a time. Then then I don't do that because it's too much. It overwhelms the system. Uh, and, and then take and cut like three shallow cuts just through the skin and barely into the flesh on each side of the tilapia. Full length from, from the, the, the back down to the belly. So just imagine that three hash cuts. Both sides of the fish angle is a good way to go. Get some gochujang. I'm talking about this before. This is the Korean fermented chili paste. Rub it all over the outside of the fish. Rub it all over the inside of the fish. Throw some salt and pepper on top of it. Throw that on the grill. We've tried that in frying pans with some oil. We've tried it like a dry fry. It doesn't really work very well. The, the gochijan, when it's on like a skillet like that, it always ends up, it's got so much sugar and it, it burns and it, it, it comes off. It doesn't stay on the fish. Grill it over like a medium heat. Take a little longer to cook it than you normally would, you know, with some of the things I just said. And that is freaking heaven. And you will not want to peel the skin off of that. That skin is so good. And rub it into the tail, and that tail will crisp up like a little fish potato chip. And if there was like 20 of those being eaten, if I got everybody's tail, I would be happy. One little piece of meat here or there, and everybody's tail, and I would be, because God, that's good. So uh, there's a little add-on. Add you can do that with any fish that you would cook whole with skin on, but it's a great way to do tilapia for you aquaponics guys And people say they don't have any flavor. Number one mistake in grilling fish, number one mistake in fish in general is overcooking it. You can always cook it more. There's no rewind button. Please remember that. Next, let me talk about fish tacos. I've talked about this before, and I've talked about making basically a chili sauce um, that I still like to do. But I've kind of fallen in love with this recipe I'm about to give you here in a minute uh it it is pretty fantastic and it allows me to make enough to use for like a month in one one go instead of having to make this and keep it in jars and then you got to use it in a certain amount of time and what have you i've kind of gone more with the chili sauce it's great to make chili with it really is and so i'll make up like now i'll make like four quarts of it and i'll throw it in the canner and can it and then when i make a batch of chili i just dump in one quart of it um still works great for these other things but Here's with fish tacos, Who uh, some of the things to think about. Number one, different fish have different techniques and advantages. I mentioned snapper. Snapper's a fantastic fish. Snapper makes a great fish taco, but you got to be really careful you don't overcook it, and you really need to eat it today. Like, you make snapper tacos, you need to eat it today. Bluegill and a lot of the fish that we catch in freshwater, um, catfish, etc., they make great fish tacos, and, but it's the same thing. If you heat, when you reheat them, they just lose their texture. Mahi and Swordfish, these are the most beautiful fish in the world for a fish taco. Because you can make a good amount of them, have some leftovers, heat them up the next day, and you won't even notice a difference. As long as you don't, you know, blow them up when you reheat them. Just take a. Tupperware bowl, put your extra fish in the Tupperware bowl, throw it in the refrigerator, take it out, put it in the microwave, do it for like 30 seconds, stir it up, another 30 seconds, like that. Take your time heating it up, taste it when you get it warm enough that it's good for a taco, stop. And you'll be able to reuse it. Sometimes I do that over three days. They never last longer than that, because if I have leftover fish tacos, it's lunch day after day after day. Let's talk about my chili recipe. You're going to want a coffee grinder to make this. Uh, you really will, I'm big on, you know, fresh grinding spice and all, but when I give you the first recipe, without it, you know, you're kind of screwed. So I like to use the Mr. Coffee coffee grinder. I have a link in today's show notes, but any good coffee grinder or spice grinder will work for this. Four dry ancho chili peppers. Now listen, you do not have to write this down. I have this in the show notes for you today in a text file. You click a link and it's right there for you. You can copy and paste it, do whatever you want with it. Uh, but four dry ancho chili peppers. You're going to pull the top off them, dump the seeds out, and tear them into small pieces. You're going to throw them into your spice grinder and grind them up before you put anything else in, or they're not going to grind fully for you. You're going to grind those into a powder. Now you're going to add a tablespoon of salt, a tablespoon of whole peppercorns, a tablespoon of paprika, a tablespoon of -of run-of-the-mill everyday chili powder, a tablespoon of dehydrated garlic, Or you can use garlic powder or granulated garlic if you don't have dehydrated garlic. I prefer dehydrated garlic because you're going to get more flavor bang out of it. One tablespoon of dehydrated onions, again, or onion powder. Two pinches of red pepper flake, more if you want to up the heat. But remember, if something's not spicy enough, people can always make it spicier by adding hot sauce or pepper or whatever. They can't take it out. There's no rewind button. And then one whole bay leaf, and generally I put that bay leaf, I kind of crunch it up and put it in with the peppers at the beginning because it's another thing that tends to stay in pieces and not get ground into a powder otherwise. Um, Also one teaspoon of cumin, and I like to use whole seed cumin for that, but you can use cumin powder. Uh, And one teaspoon of dehydrated jalapenos. Note the cumin and jalapenos are one teaspoon. Because they're both strong flavors, and there's no rewind button when it comes to cooking. You can always add more. Uh, That seasoning and that amount is not – I had one person, I put this out somewhere else. I I made that, and it was horrible. It was so overpowering. Well, what did you do? I made it up, and then I cooked the – he made tacos. He put a pound of ground beef in there, and I dumped it all in like, like you do the old El Paso package. No, no, don't do that. <laughs> don't do that. That's not how you use this stuff. What you do when you make fish tacos? You put your fish in some – you get some olive oil, heat it up, throw your fish in, okay? You cook your fish about 70% to where – it would, you know, 30% away from being finished. You get your, your taco seasoning, you sprinkle it and give it a good coating. Flip it over, give it another good coating, stir it around. If it has any spots where it's missing some – Get your spoon, just shake it. Give it a nice light coating, completely coat the fish. Saute it a little bit longer, it won't take almost any time at all to be done at that point. Shut the heat off. If you're on an electric stove, move the damn pan off the burner because the burner's going to stay hot for a long time. Gas, if you kill the heat, you kill the heat. And let it sit for a little while, let it come down in temperature a little bit, let the carryover heat do its job, and mahi or swordfish done that way will blow you away. While I'm on this, I'm gonna tell you what: if you took a piece of mahi or swordfish, like a whole steak, and you coated it on both sides with this seasoning and threw that shit on the grill, you would never regret it. I don't think that you will regret taking this seasoning and putting on a piece of fish or shrimp ever in your life. You want to do grilled shrimp uh, shrimp tacos? Do the same thing I just said: cook the shrimp about fifty to sixty percent of the way, throw the seasoning on them, toss them around, make sure there's enough seasoning. Taste one. Do you think it'd use a little more seasoning? Add a little bit more. No rewind button. Boom. That is just, that's all you got to do to cook the fish. Here's kind of what I really like if I want to do tacos that are really elevated, like something you'd go out to a high end, you know, Tex Mex place and pay 18 bucks a plate for. I like to top them with uh, a slaw, uh, a guacamole, and a Chipotle mayo. And and here's how you make each one of those. By the way, we have a built-on for breakfast that will be out within the next three or four weeks that's going to be exactly how to do this, by the way, at builtonforbreakfast.com. So I buy the pre-shredded carrots that are like little matchstick shreds just because it's no work at all. An equal amount of carrot and cabbage, and then take, especially if you grow your own, like a red jalapeno because it has a different color. But a red hot pepper, I don't mean really hot, I mean colored red, use green. Otherwise, if you can, and slice really thin slices, like julienne, super thin slices of a hot pepper. If you take the seeds out, this won't be very hot. If you use a really hot pepper like habanero and blow your brains out, that's your own problem. Serrano's are a lot hotter. Uh, Poblano would be probably really good for this. But about one-third of the amount of pepper as there is the amount of carrot and or slaw. So if you were making a lot and you used a cup of carrots and a cup of cabbage, that would be a lot. You would use a third of the cup of peppers, about what we worked out to be pretty good. I sprinkle some apple cider vinegar on there. Not a lot, just to get a little bit of a pickle action going on. Squeeze a half a lime, and then I put about a, a tablespoon of mayo and start mixing it up. And then I'll look at it. And if it looks like I can use a little bit more mayo to get a good coating, I'll add a little bit more. No rewind button. You can always add more. It's hard to take away. A little salt and pepper then at the end. That'll pull some of the moisture out of the carrot. The the acid from the vinegar and the lime juice will keep it crispy, though. So I like to put the salt on at the end. That can be done well in advance. That can be done a day in advance. It will get better in the refrigerator overnight. Set that aside for when your tacos are done. Make these before you cook your fish, by the way, all these sides. Guacamole, take an avocado, cut it open. Don't cut your freaking finger off. Mash it up. Salt and pepper. You've got basic guacamole. I like to usually chop up some cilantro, throw that in my guacamole, and I usually like to put some chili pepper in there. Anything else you want to add is your business, green onions, etc., cetera, whatever, red onions, whatever you want to do. I, I think that if you put yellow or white onions in guacamole, you should be shot in the face with a bazooka because you ruin it. It's too overpowering. But thinly sliced green onion uh, is, is is good in guacamole. I'm okay with the red onion, a little bit of it. I really don't personally care for it, but it works. So you make a guacamole. You want to do that kind of day right, right before you cook because it does brown so quickly. Best way I know to keep guacamole from browning is that you, you use some lime juice in it, so also juice of the lime in there mixed in with it, and that will help some, but it's still going to brown pretty quick. Is Take saran wrap and, and level your guacamole in your bowl till it's flat in the bottom and take saran wrap and push it straight down flat against your guacamole and against the bowl. And that's pretty good because you push most of the oxygen out of the way. Uh, And if you do that in lime juice, and for some reason leaving the pits does seem to work. I've tried it both ways, and it seems to work better. I don't understand it. It seems almost like a myth, but I don't know if there's some gas that's released by those pits. People say it's just about reducing the oxygen. It can't be that because it does seem to work better that way big time. So uh, you can do that if you want to. Um, And then Chipotle mayo. And I've talked about this before. People think Chipotle mayo is something complicated. Uh, I buy Chipotle peppers in adobo sauce, and they come in a little can. And a Chipotle is a smoked jalapeno. It's a smoked red jalapeno. And I do not deceive them. You pull one or two peppers out of that can, depending on how much mayo you want to make, chop them really, really fine into little tiny pieces, mix it with mayo. I do about a third Chipotle to two-thirds mayo in volume by eye. You can do whatever you want, less or more or what have you. And I like to add a little bit of lime juice, probably a, a one eighth to one quarter of a lime wedge squeezed into that. It seems to help preserve it and keep it fresh. You can make that up and put it in a squeeze bottle, throw it in the refrigerator. It's good for a couple weeks. So you can make your slaw and your mayo. If you're going to do Taco Tuesday, you could do the, the slaw and the mayo on Sunday. Easy. Saturday, if you wanted to, and have that in the refrigerator ready to go Tuesday night. Make up your guacamole. Make up your fish. Pull that stuff out. Um, cheese, cheddar, cojita cheese, uh, any any cheese you want to use, a, a, a jack cheddar blend, uh, You know, a pepper jack, whatever you want to use. I find that when I make these and I do the slaw and I do the guac and I do the chipotle mayo, they don't really need much cheese. My wife thinks that's heresy, but... You know, I use the, I guess, normal size, not the little, the normal size corn tortillas seem to be best for this. And there's a lot of stuff on that taco. And my God, and, and, and one of you guys, I don't remember who it is, convinced me of the slaw. And I tried it, and I went, oh, my God, this is incredible. I made I made pork the exact same way last night. Uh, because we made the, the fish tacos for Sunday for built-on for breakfast, and it was still in my head, and I had this pork tenderloin, and I cubed it up, did exactly the same type of thing with the pork, except since the pork's a little easier to cook, I pre-seasoned the pork before I fried it. Uh, and that came out good. I made more of the slaw just to have the freaking slaw on it. That whole thing goes together with that chipotle mayo drizzled on the top. It is one of the best things you'll ever eat. And you wonder when you make food like this, why will I go out and pay fifty to a hundred dollars for two people to eat when I can cook like this at home and feed ten people that good for you know twenty five thirty bucks? And if you're feeding two people, you know you you, you might spend twenty bucks on everything, but you have leftovers and you eat two nights for ten bucks each night, so that's five dollars a head, and you're eating something that's so elevated and so good and so amazing and so flavorful and so many different flavors for pennies on the dollar. Now, I know what some of you are saying, Jack, i got four kids, and I can't afford to cook mahi-mahi freaking tacos like this. Yes, you can. Golden potatoes are your secret weapon. Cube your golden potatoes to the same size you cube your fish. Don't waste any time. Don't even peel them. Peelings are great, they get a little bit of crispy action going on. Okay? Cube your potatoes. Make half potato, half fish. Your fish just got cut in half for price. It's cheap now. Your mahi mahi now costs you what mullet cost you. Because potatoes are cheap, ain't they? That's why everybody eats them. Alright. Fry your potatoes till they're not done, but almost done. If you eat one, you go, it's got that little bit of raw potato taste left to it. Throw your fish in. Cook your fish till it's half done. Throw your seasoning on top of it. The potatoes are going to suck up the fish flavor, and they're going to suck up that that, that taco seasoning flavor. And when you eat a taco with it, I swear to God you'll barely be able to tell the difference between the potato and the fish, and the potato will taste so good you won't care. And make them up the same way. So now you're down from about five dollars a plate to two fifty a plate. Now you can afford to do it if you have four kids. And you can make it with other cheaper fish. It just isn't gonna be leftovers really good. And you need to what you need to do differently, if you're making it with a more delicate fish, is as soon as the fish starts to change color at all, not all of it, just begins to change color, go ahead and season it because you're not going to have as long to work with it. And if you're going to cut it with potatoes, cook the potatoes till they're 95% done before you throw the fish in because the fish are going to take two to three minutes of that at that rate with that more delicate fish. God, this is good. So again, potatoes have been a stretching tool for a long time. You can do that with shrimp too cook your potatoes add your shrimp they suck up it's it's very very good it's it's hard to stay paleo when you know that i'll tell you what works really good too a lot of you guys are growing the japanese purple sweet potatoes where the skin's purple but the flesh is like a white golden color they will need to cook longer they take a little bit longer to fry but those things in one of these it oh god and and they're a little bit more friendly to the paleo world some simple things you can do. Real quick stuff here as we wrap up. Number one, pan-fried shucked bullheads. So remember I talked about cooking the, the catfish steaks and stuff on the grill? Well, you catch these little bullhead catfish, and you know they're 10 to 14 inches generally. They're not real big fish. There's a way to clean them, but when I saw it, it changed my opinion about them forever because my problem with them is they're half head. And by the time you fillet them, you don't get much out of them. They're perfectly good-eating fish, but you need really big ones to make them worth eating. And a lot of times you catch a lot of little 9, 10-inchers. You're like, i got too much trouble to clean this little damn fish. Well, what I've learned to do with them is called shucking. They have that little fin that's right in front of their tail. It's like a little tab that sticks out. And you take a knife and you go under there. This is hard to explain on the air, but you, I've got a, a link where you can see a couple videos on it. And you take a sharp knife you cut up their back until you get to that fin that sticks up that stabs you in the hand. And right there, you stick your tip of your knife down in there, and you cut through the bone, the backbone. you got to be careful when you do that that you don't cut the skin on the sides. You've only cut that tab, that strip up, because what I'm about to tell you to do next, if you cut into that skin, the skin's going to tear on you. You then kind of break, like take the head and the body and kind of bend it till that, that bone sticks up. You take a pair of pliers, you reach in there and grab the backbone, hold the head, and pull. If you did it right, it takes a few times before you get the hang of it, but if you do it right, the skin comes off, the guts come out, everything stays together with the head, you throw that away, and you're holding with a pair of pliers a perfectly skinned, with bones in, fish. It's like a head-off, gutted, skinned fish. It takes less than 30 seconds of fish when you get good at it. I still take about 45 because if I try to get it down to 30 seconds, I screw it up and tear the skin. This works also on those hardhead catfish, those ocean catfish. I tried it on a couple; worked just fine. And they have that, the oil that catfish do, you season them up with that freaking taco seasoning and throw them whole on the grill. Before you do, cut a couple slits of them to help render that fat. They don't have to cook long because they're not big. They're like freaking fish candy, and they come right off the bone. And there's no problem with bones; they're wonderful. A um, the next one: grilled mussels, clams, or oysters. People come up with tons of ways to make them. Throw them on the grill. Throw them on the grill. That's what I said. Throw them on the freaking grill. And as soon as they pop open, take them off the grill and eat them as they pop open. They'll get that little bit of liquor in there with them. They'll cook with them. Get them off the grill before that comes out. Set them on there so that when they pop open, that doesn't all run out on you. That stuff's really good. And, and I mean, the one time David and I made them, we sat there with a giant bag of mussels. And we threw about a dozen on at a time. And once they had all popped open and we ate them, we threw another dozen on. We just stood there eating them. Oh, my God. So fresh, so good. Um, And I'm not opposed to eating like raw clams and raw oysters. I just don't like shucking them. It's a lot of work. So basically, it's like letting heat pop them open and eating them as fresh as possible that way. Uh, Green curry shrimp and fish soup. You can uh, try bullhead catfish, channel catfish with this. You can try tilapia is really good with this. Uh, You can do dish fish, just shrimp, whatever you want. But I've talked about this stuff before, and it's one of my cooking cheat codes. uh, We ploy, my ploy, my ploy, uh, Thai curry paste. And they have the red curry and the yellow curry and the green curry. The green curry, I think, makes the best um, fish soups. And so what I'll do with that is I'll take a little bit of oil and about a teaspoon of green curry paste less is more. You can always add more. It gets pretty hot if you use too much of this stuff. And I'll, I'll saute it a little bit. And then I'll add water. And I use better than bullion fish paste. This is a quick dish when I make this. I add that. Um, and I add whatever fresh vegetables I want to add to it. And some sliced up pieces of fish uh, and shrimp. And scallop's good for this. Kind of put that in there and just poach it poach it through. A really great topping for that is make a dry slaw. Kind of like we talked about earlier, but you don't use any of the mayo or the the uh, what do you call it the uh, the vinegar or anything with it. Um, so you take like a daikon radish and do a really thin sliced daikon, really thin sliced um, carrot, and then on the bias, really thin sliced um, uh, what am I looking for? A green onion and some really thin sliced chili, especially if you have like a Fresno chili, like a red chili or red jalapenos. You're going to have some really thin sliced. Mix that up. Plate your soup and set that on top of it. You'd pay twelve bucks for that Thai restaurant for a little bitty cup of it. You make your ass a big ass bowl of it for about three or four dollars less if you catch your own fish. You don't need that much fish in it. God is fantastic, and you can make your own shrimp, uh, your own fish broth if you want to. Um, a lot of people that fish a lot, you, you know, you save up heads and carcasses and make boil it. And to me, it's a lot of work. That better. I don't do this that often. So, that better than bullion stuff, put a tablespoon in and, and about three cups of water, and you got fish stock. It's, it's just great. Um, next one, lobster. Like, easy way to do lobster tails. And I've got a picture just to kind of drive the point home here. Right before we went on vacation, I went out and bought eight lobster tails, okay, uh, and split them in half and boiled them. And I grilled some sausage, but then I threw that in with the lobster boil with the old base seasoning and some corn. And we had basically like a giant crawfish boil with lobster tails. Um, so between the two of us, you know, we had eight lobster tails, four piece. Now, the little four-ounce ones, what do you think that would have cost in a restaurant? The whole thing, including, I, I, I did the math, including I made a, a, a mojito each before. Actually, I did, I think I actually did mar- margaritas that night, now that I think about it. But it was mo- mojitos or margaritas. I made a, a drink before, and we had that with dinner. And then we had one after dinner as we sat there full on lobster tail. So the, the drinks in a restaurant are going to be ten to twelve bucks. You're at like fifty, but 50 bucks in drinks. I got sixty bucks in the whole meal. It, it, the last time I saw, we were in in uh, Florida. I saw a meal and it was like some mashed potatoes and some green beans and or whatever vegetables and two of these little lobster tails. And that was it. It was twenty five bucks so that's those eight tails are for four of those 25 dollars a hundred bucks plus the sausage was a really great like small batch a wonderful like uh, sausage that I had found it was just bourbon and some bacon in it and it was fantastic plus the drinks I mean you're in 200 bucks if not more add tip the cost of going out the inconvenience of going, and we had 60 bucks in it, and that was splurging. That was splurging to the point where Dorothy had one half of the tail left and said, I, I can't eat this. And I said, I'm going to eat it. I didn't really need to, but I ate it, and it was good. Um, the key to making lobster, cook it till it just will pull out. When it comes to the tail, it will just pull out. And I'm going to leave it for tails today instead of whole lobster. My favorite way is to split the tails in half, throw them in some water with some Old Bay, It's already boiling, and I can't tell you how long I look at them and I know. Once you do it, time it for yourself. You know how long it takes for you to do it. But get the water screaming hot boiling first, and it doesn't take very long. People talk about putting the lobster in a water bath and cooling it down to stop the cooking process. If you're going to cut it up in pieces and make lobster mac and cheese, or you're going to cut it up in pieces and make a lobster pasta dish or something like that, and it's going to be heated up again, sure. Okay? You're gonna be cool like David and you're gonna make your buddy a freaking uh, Bloody Mary with a lobster tail on top of it? Sure. If you're gonna eat it, just throw that shit on the plate and go eat it while it's still warm. It's really good. Do some drawn butter. Uh, I'll save it for the item of the day, but my wife used the item of the day mixed with some butter and we were dipping that shit in that butter and that was good. That was a hell of a meal. My other way that I like to make lobster, I should really say two ways, it's really three ways. You split the tails in half, some butter, salt, pepper, paprika throw them in a frying pan um, with the, the, the flesh side down at first. Get a little sear on them, flip them over and cook them until they're done. Again, when you can reach in there, take a fork and pull and it just will pull out real easily. And the funny thing is, it'll pull out real easily when it's raw. It'll pull out real easily when it's cooked. Once it starts to cook, it'll get where it doesn't want to come out. Cook it till it comes out easily and it's done. As soon as it comes out easily, get it out, there's no rewind button. You can always put it back in if you don't think it's done enough. Same thing done on the grill. Cut the tails in half. Salt, pepper, paprika, a little bit of garlic, a little bit of butter brushing. um, Flesh side down on the grill till they get a sear. Flip them over. Cook them till they're done, until they pull out. Lobster's lobster. You don't need to be screwing around making Thermidor or some other bullshit. Just cook it and eat it and be happy about the fact that you're lucky enough to live in a world where you can eat lobster. And if you eat it at home, it costs about 20% of what it costs to eat in a restaurant, even a shitty one like Red Lobster. Okay, finishing up now. Some rules that will make everything better. Again, fish should not smell or taste fishy. If you have fishy, stinky fish, do not eat it. It is not fit for consumption. Even the cat probably doesn't want it, as much as they say cats do. Um, It makes good chum at that point, or bait. That's about it. Next, keep fish so cold it's almost frozen. Here's the easy way to do so. When I make ceviche, and I make it in a bowl, I take a bowl of about the same size. This is where it's going to, if I'm not eating it right now. I half fill that second bowl with ice cubes. I set the first bowl on top of the second bowl. I put the whole thing in the refrigerator. So it's sitting on ice. If I have some fish fillets that I don't want to freeze that I'm going to cook tomorrow, I put them in a bowl after I've dried them off well. I'll generally put a little piece of paper towel on top of them to cover them to wick up any excess moisture. I set that bowl on a bowl of about equal sizes full of ice. Put this in the bottom of the refrigerator. That's the coldest part. It will stay as cold as possible. Your ice will generally hold overnight. In the morning, you may wake up and find half the ice melt, so it's sitting on ice water, but that fish is going to be ice cold. If you're doing tacos or something like that, that fish, where you want to slice it up, cube it up, is going to cut beautifully for you. If you're doing sashimi or sushi, it's going to cut beautiful for you. If you go to a good sushi place, and don't go to a bad one, you'll always see they have just a massive amount of crushed ice. It looks like snow, like thick snow. And all the fish is just sitting skin side down on the ice. There's a reason. Do the same thing at home. You're going to have a wet refrigerator, right? You don't have facilities they do. But just simply half full of ice bowl, bowl sitting on top of the bowl. And if you have like a non reactive metal bowl like stainless steel, that really conveys the cold a lot better than plastic. But plastic will even do that as well if that's what you have. Again, get the water out. Seriously, get the fish dry before you use it. One more time get the water out of the fish. I don't mean squeeze it and wring it out till you've mushed the fish up. I don't mean to squeeze it like it owes you money and you better pay you or you're going to break its neck. I just mean wrap that crab in a paper towel and put some gentle pressure on it and do that until it stops soaking the paper towel wet and then put it on some paper towel, put it in that refrigerator, give it some time to, to, to wick that moisture out. Everything will be better, and if you want to grill whole fish on the grill and you don't do this, you will say, it doesn't work, it sticks to the grill. That's because your fish is wet or your grill's not seasoned. Oiled, dry, seasoned grill. You will not have a problem grilling fish straight on the grill if that's what you want to do. Do not overcook the fish. Do not overcook the fish. Do not overcook. People are afraid of shit. If you're cooking saltwater fish in particular, people pay big money to eat that shit raw. Don't murder it until it turns into mush. That's why people don't like fish. It's all mushy. You overcooked it. Don't overcook the freaking fish. You don't have a rewind button. You do have a redo button. If it ain't cooked enough, you can cook it some more. Okay? If it flakes gently with a fork, it's done. Stop cooking it. Don't overcook it. Same with seasoning. You cannot remove... If you oversalt something, it's salted. Very difficult to get it out. I can tell you, like, one way you can do this. Let's say you made a soup and you oversalted it. You can cut up, like, four big potatoes into, like, quarters they are raw, throw them in there and, and turn it into a low simmer and gently simmer those potatoes, take them out and give them to the chickens, throw them away, make compost out of them, whatever. They'll actually draw a lot of salt out of the water. That's about the only way I know to rewind that. You ain't doing that with a piece of fish. Don't over-season stuff. Don't over-spice stuff. Don't make stuff too hot. I did it recently with chicken wings. I made it too much. I just used black pepper, but I used too much. I loved them. It's too hot for my wife. I can't undo it once it's been done. You can always add more. You can't take it away. Don't overcook it. Get it dry. Keep it cold, and it shouldn't smell like fish. It should smell like food. You do those things, no matter what you cook with fish, you're going to like it. Hope you enjoyed today's show. It did go kind of long because, well, I just happen to be really passionate about cooking great food. I do believe this is one of the best things you can do in your life to be more self-sufficient. Learn to cook at this elevated level without making it hard. Those fish tacos will blow anybody away unless you are a person that either is a vegan or and then you can make them without the fish, and i will still like them, and I don't know why you'd do that. Um, or they just can't eat fish for some reason. People that say, I don't like fish. I've made those fish tacos for them. They're like, oh, my God, that's how good they are. That's because it's Jack's Secret Seasoning that I've given you the recipe for. Try it. You'll like it. Again, pork, chicken, everything that stuff's good on. Um, but, man, if you can make four or five meals just a month like this, that you would go out and spend 100 Bucks or more on for your family, and you can make them for ten to twenty bucks instead, and replace one you know meal a month out with five amazing meals a month home. How much better is your quality of life for how much less money? And if you're eating out once a week, and you change that to eating out once a month, and make those other ones with meals like this, and the other things I've talked about cooking, how much more money can you put to your savings in your retirement? We talked about the richest man in Babylon yesterday. How much more money can you now put to work for you? How much more can you put in that portion that we decided yesterday was yours to keep? Remember, most people think all the money they make is theirs to keep. No, it's not. They got to pay for food, they got to pay for housing, they got to pay for insurance. Every time we cut one of those expenses, especially if we cut it and at the same time improve our lives, we make it easier. We have less of a hole in our life to chase with plastic shit. We put that money where it actually works for us. We can build wealth while we live like kings, so that when we retire, we can continue to live like kings. Most Americans live at or above the poverty level in actual assets that they hold in their hand for their entire life, even when they make lots of money. Cooking is one way to reverse that. It's not the only thing. But it's a great way to do it. And when you're busy with your family cooking, you don't have time to be on Home Shopping Network or out spending money you don't have on shit you don't need, and you eat really good. It's a win all around. So that's why I think it's a a, a great uh, skill to have. And so many people can't do it anymore. It's sad how many people in the world can't cook, can't open a can of soup and heat it up, for God's sakes. Couldn't make an egg if their life depended on it. Don't be that person. And don't let your kids become that person. Teach these skills and teach the value of them. It's not hard. With that, if you enjoyed today's show, and you want to support the work that we do, one of the ways you can do that is do your online shopping at tspaz.com. If you go to tspaz.com, whenever you're going to shop online, you'll see all of my reviews of products that I that I have used in my own life. And uh, you can order them and you help support the show. And if you uh, you know, if you just use our links and anything you do from that point, as long as you're shopping at tspaz.com help support us. Remember, though, if it's there and on my reviews, I own it. I spent my money on it. I probably did it more than once, or I wouldn't recommend it to you. Today is one I learned about from Mike and Teresa. Now, Mike and Teresa are a couple. You've probably met them if you've ever been to a workshop. They, like, run our kitchen for us during our workshops. Mike is a a prior uh, professional chef. He brought this stuff to my house called Johnny's Garlic Spread Seasoning. It's like garlic and Parmesan and some other stuff. It's very, very good. This is what I was talking about. My wife puts in the butter that goes on the... The shrimp and the lobster or crab, whenever we do something like that. It's just fantastic. Well, when we they first brought this stuff, they made garlic bread. It was a, a workshop where I hadn't added that to the menu yet. Michael like, yeah, said, we'll go get some bread and we'll do this stuff. So they make this, and uh, <coughs> it comes out, and they call it, I thought they said it was cracked bread. And it's kind of like, it's got this crusty bread crust, and it's cracked, and it's got some little cracked bread pepper on it, and it was really good. So I thought it was cracked bread. And I uh, was, that makes sense for like two workshops. It was cracked bread, and then finally Teresa's like, "Are you saying cracked bread?" I am like, "Yeah." She goes, "No, it's crack bread. Your wife called it that." I am like, "I thought crack bread was y'all's thing." I said, "Well, we made it. It's she called it crack bread because it's like crack cocaine. You can't stop eating it." And so quite a few people recently said, hey, you need to make this stuff the item of the day uh, on our Facebook group and whatnot. So I did today, and there's a lot of other cool things. I'll I'll go short with it because I talked about so many ways to cook today, uh, but I have a lot of ideas for you. But we did this with corn on the cob, uh, with vegetables. This would be fantastic on any fish that you grilled. It's really good stuff. Again, grilled vegetables in a foil pouch method is really awesome. Uh, I've done asparagus. I've done green beans. I've done squash. Put it in a pouch, add some butter or some olive oil, sprinkle some of this on it, and oh man, the thing is, don't use it on everything in one meal, use it on a thing or two in one meal. But the, the thing it's really good on if you eat bread is garlic bread. And I don't eat a lot of bread, but boy, well, I sure eat it during our workshops. And you some butter on the bread, and then you sprinkle this stuff on it, and you throw it in the oven, and you hit it with the broil a little bit to crisp it at the end, and oh wow, really good stuff. It is a, It seems expensive. Because you can get it in a twin pack, 18-ounce twin pack, and that's like $24. But one bottle of this crap lasts like a year, and it damn near stores infinitely. So it's really actually affordable, spread out over how long you're going to use it. And trust me, if you have a neighbor that likes to cook, you'd probably go in on a batch and split it with you and each get a bottle. And again, an 18-ounce bottle lasts a long time, unless you become completely addicted and go overboard. That brings us to our Song of the Day. Song of the Day during Johnny Cash Week today is one of my favorite Johnny Cash songs. Uh, I Walk the Line. Uh, I like this song an awful lot. I like the, the concept and the meaning behind it. And it's Johnny Cash. If you don't like Johnny Cash, I don't know what's wrong with you. Uh, and, and so I will say a lot about Johnny Cash and this song from him. I will say it's been covered by a few people. And one of the people I saw do a really modernized, interesting version of it is a dude from uh, American Idol, when that show used to not completely suck, uh, named Chris Daughtry. Of course, of the band Daughtry. Now, as a guy, a lot of people thought she'd win, and he's come out and had, you know, platinum records and won awards and been successful and makes lots of money. And some dude named Taylor Swift won that year, and I don't think he's probably out begging for quarters on a street corner or something. So that kind of says a lot about that. But you might want to look up Daughtry's, Chris Daughtry's version of this song as well. Big time contrast. But I walk the Line is just an incredible classic Johnny Cash song. One of his uh, most famous songs of all time, it was really uh, a promise to remain faithful to his first wife, Vivian, while he was on the road. And a lot of other people have taken a cue from that and done songs. uh, Faithfully by Journey is really that same formula to a totally different type of music. Uh, Walk the Line was the title of the 2005 uh, Cash Biography movie, uh, it starred Joaquin Phoenix as Cash and Reese Witherspoon as June Carter. So even the movie made after his life was uh, named after this song. So it's as classic as uh, Johnny Cash can get. It's been around a while. It's been re-recorded by, by Johnny before he left us in uh, multiple uh, other versions. Originally recorded all the way back in April 1956. And still just an outstanding song from the Man in Black himself, Johnny Cash. With that, it's been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't.
1: I keep a close watch on this heart of mine I keep my eyes wide open all the time I keep the ends out for the pilot, fine, because you're mine. I walk the line. Mm-hmm. I find it very, very easy to be true. I find myself alone when each day's through. Yes, I'll admit. That I'm a fool for you Because you're mine I walk the line As sure as night is dark and day is light I keep you on my mind both day and night And happiness I've known proves that it's right